You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2023 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together in fellowship and worship, and once again, to turn the pages of history back and look at the life of John Norton Loughborough. As we examine his challenges and successes and failures, we pray that we may learn some lessons that will be practical for our own lives to help us be better Christians today. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You know, in his many diaries, pamphlets, books, and articles, John Loughborough never revealed that his real name was not Loughborough. His humble Irish ancestors had called themselves Loof, L-O-O-F, Loughboroughs. In the 1740s, they emigrated from England to New Jersey. In 1806, however, the family moved to the tiny village of Victor, New York, a few miles south of Rochester. And there they saw the falling of the stars in 1833 and believed this foreshadowed Christ's soon coming. Now, because his father, Nathan B. Loofborough, died of typhoid fever, when little John was only seven, his mother Minerva, who already had four children, sent him to live with his grandfather and grandmother for eight years. John's grandfather shaped John Jr.'s future in a number of ways. A carpenter cabinet maker by trade, Nathan also instilled in John a deep loyalty to his country and an ability to build things, cabinets, bookshelves, chicken coops, and even a house when John was 72 years old. His grandfather Nathan was a former infantry lieutenant, a patriot loyal to his country, and he instilled in his grandson a firm commitment to law and order. John would apply that love of order as he organized churches and conferences around the world. As a Methodist class leader and a circuit-riding preacher, Nathan's family worshiped every Sunday in the churches that he had built in Victor and Canandaigua, New York. At the age of three, little Johnny attended the Methodist church school taught by Miss Bibbins where he learned to recite poems for school programs. At the age of five, he attended Joseph Hollister's Presbyterian School, where he learned from the study of Webster's spelling book to eat slow and chew your food fine. This interest in diet would lead him to establish our very first sanitarium in Battle Creek, in 1866, and he would write many articles and one book on the subject of health reform for the church papers. At five, he was awestruck by the red flashes of the aurora borealis during the winter, and he felt sure that Jesus was coming soon. His passionate love for astronomy would later inspire him to paint two dozen wonders of the heavens charts using full-size bedsheets to demonstrate God's end-time heavenly signs for his evangelistic meetings. The traveling menageries, those are kind of like early country traveling zoos that came through rural New York in the 1830s, developed within John a deep love for animals of all kinds. Wherever he lived, John would own horses, a cow or two, cats and dogs, and flocks of Rhode Island Reds. Like his father and grandfather, John also possessed remarkable mechanical skills. At the age of six, he made his first homemade matches using his mother's brimstone, some candle wax, and sticks. At the age of 13, 
Johnny Loofborough crafted a violin that produced such beautiful tones that a local physician bought it from him. His classmates nicknamed him the philosopher because he managed to produce every single machine that was listed in Comstock's physics book. Throughout his long life, Loughborough would demonstrate this unique ability to invent useful things, not only for his own home, but for churches and society. Now, like most other farmers and artisans in antebellum America, the Loofborough's lives centered around church activities. John enjoyed listening to members' tear-filled testimonies, participating in the communion services, and joining in the rousing singing classes. When John was six years old, his Sunday school teacher led her pupils in reciting Revelation chapter 22 as tears of joy ran down her face. Later in life, John would write a book and dozens of articles about the saints' inheritance in the new earth. But John was also troubled by a fear of death and uncertainty regarding his salvation. Grandpa Loofborough, I'm afraid, deepened the boy's anxiety by telling him that he must pray every single night before he went to sleep, or he would go to hell. His uncle, Miles Carter, informed him that hell was a thousand times hotter than the iron nail rods they were melting in the blacksmith's fire. Deeply convicted of his sins, John feared that he was indeed predestined to hell. But it was the Millerite movement that delivered him from that fear. In 1843, the entire Loofbull family attended the six-week meetings of Elders Barry and Adams in Rochester, New York. Grandpa Nathan began subscribing to the Midnight Cry, the Signs of the Times, and the Voice of Truth. And his grandson, Johnny, peddled these papers around the neighborhood. He loved poring over Charles Fitch's 1842 prophetic chart with its strange beasts and its images and mathematical calculations of the 1260 days, the 70 weeks, the 2300-year prophecies. And if you'd like to see a Millerite chart, I've dropped one off at the exhibit tent. You can go right after the meeting, if you like, and uh, look up that uh, museum exhibit there, uh, because that's where you'll find the Millerite chart with Terry Dodge. Unfortunately, Millerism split the mainline churches, leading to the expulsions of longtime members. And so in the spring of 1844, the Loofborough family were expelled from the Victor Methodist Church, the very church that John's father and grandfather had built. Well, John's grandfather, with a sense of irony, I'm sure, built a brand new meeting house directly across the street from their old church. But as October 22, 1844 passed, 12-year-old Johnny felt the bitter disappointment, and he faced the taunts of his young friends who shouted, what? Haven't you gone up yet? Confused by the scoffing articles in his Methodist Christian Advocate paper, John read Charles Fitch's reassuring tract, The Second Advent of Christ, and resolved to remain faithful until the day that Jesus did come. Meanwhile, John began working after school in the blacksmith shop of his older brother, William. John's classmates, recognizing his gift for public speaking, elected him president of the school's literary society. Throughout his life, Elder Loughborough would be remembered for his deeply stirring sermons, his inspiring historical articles, and his eloquent prayers and poetry. But at the age of 16, he was not yet a converted Christian who loved Jesus as his personal Savior. While he was working in the blacksmith shop of his brother, however, he began attending some revival meetings held by Phineas Smith, deeply convicted. John began reading his Bible in the coal shed. 
He also asked the members to pray for him. But the biggest change in his life occurred on June 1, 1848, when after a tremendous struggle, he gave his life to Christ. A month later, he was baptized in the mill stream off the Erie Canal at Adams Basin into the Advent Christian Church. And then he began preparing a series of 11 sermons and Bible studies. In January of 1849, when he's not yet 17, he preached his first sermon in Kendall Corners, west of Rochester. He was called the Boy Preacher. And yet this boy preacher, who wore borrowed and ill-matched clothing too large for him, did not find preaching a bed of roses. Well, some folks welcomed him into their homes and their schoolhouses and their churches. There were others who attacked his message. Shortly after John began speaking at one meeting, some teenage rowdies began pelting him with hickory nuts and corn kernels. At one home gathering, a Baptist pastor who was confident that he could beat this stripling boy preacher in a doctrinal duet tried to prove that man's soul was indeed immortal because the Bible said so. 17-year-old Johnny challenged him to cite one text. And the pastor quoted Revelation chapter 25 about the soul that cannot die. Johnny pointed out, first of all, that it was the ancient Greek philosopher Plato that taught the immortality of the soul. And secondly, that Revelation chapter 25 was three chapters outside the Bible, which ended with chapter 22. The pastor, claiming to have another urgent appointment, quickly left the house. Now, if his conversion was the most important event in his young life, John's move to Rochester soon brought about the second important change in his life. For it was in that bustling city that he met a girl named Mary Walker, a seamstress. On October 14, 1851, they were married and moved into a house on the corner of Union and Monroe Streets. Marriage brought two important changes for John. First, he gave up his bachelor status. Second, he changed his name from Loughborough to Loughborough. I think that Mary, who was of English background, did not like the Irish sound of John's surname, Loughborough, and forced him to change it. You see, at that time in American history, the Irish were extremely unpopular in America. In fact, they were hated. There were signs on shop windows, no dogs or Irish allowed. Yeah, across the United States. Although barely 20, John pastored three Advent Christian groups. And like his circuit-riding Methodist grandfather, he continued his speaking tours of western New York and northern Pennsylvania. Deeper Bible study in Revelation chapter 13, however, left him puzzled regarding the location of the sanctuary. Which day was the true Sabbath? And the identity of the two-horned beast? And which law had been abolished at the cross? Seeking answers, he asked his friend, Dr. Franklin Hahn, for help. Dr. Hahn told him, that the Seventh-day people had the correct answers to those questions. Considering this sound advice, Loughborough resolved to attend their meetings. But the night before he did that, he had a mysterious dream in which he saw a man that he had never met standing before a crowd and preaching on Revelation 13 and the sanctuary. After awakening from his dream, John wrote out a list of Bible texts concerning the law, the Sabbath, and the sanctuary that he found confusing. On September 26, 1852, John, with seven of his Advent Christian friends, entered the hall 
124 Mount Hope Avenue with this list in his pocket. He immediately recognized the speaker. It was John Nevins Andrews, the man he had seen in his dream. And to Loughborough's astonishment, Elder Andrews quickly and clearly explained every single text on John Loughborough's list in exactly the same order that he had written them down. At a subsequent meeting, John was invited to join James and Ellen White in praying for the healing of Oswald Stowell, a press, hand press operator at the review office who was dying of pleurisy, a lung disease. After special prayer, after anointing with oil, Stowell was instantly healed. Four weeks after hearing Andrews preach, John and Mary Loughborough joined the Sabbatarian Adventist movement. Like other beginning preachers, John was apprenticed to an experienced evangelist. During the winters of 1852 and 53, hitching up James and Ellen White's horse, whose name was Old Charlie, by the way, hitching Old Charlie to borrowed sleds and wagons, Hiram Edson took John all over southwestern New York and northern Pennsylvania. With no paved roads and very few railroads, they hiked through knee-deep snowdrifts, and they slogged through ankle-deep mud. They faced fanaticism of many kinds, but they won many souls as well. Now that summer, John teamed up with James and Ellen White and Merritt Cornell for an evangelistic tour de force around south-central Michigan. And during this tour, he, mis- he witnessed Mrs. White in vision numerous times and heard her rebuke secret sins that no one else knew anything about. Following evangelistic meetings with Elder Cornell in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in June 1853, John Loughborough was ordained to the gospel ministry by James White and Merritt Cornell. Immediately, Cornell and Loughborough left for an exhausting three-month evangelistic tour of Illinois, Wisconsin, and Indiana. During the 1850s, this skinny young preacher, John Loughborough was only five feet four inches tall, and even if all of his clothes were sopping wet, he weighed in at 110 pounds. He established some famous firsts for Sabbath-keeping Adventists. Loughborough and Cornell became the first preachers to use a tent for evangelistic meetings when they commenced preaching in Battle Creek, 1854. John became the first Adventist to try selling tracts at his Shelby, Michigan meetings. Most of our evangelists felt it would be futile to try selling. People wouldn't buy them, and so they were trying to give tracts away. John was amazed that people bought $50 worth of his tracts, which only sold for three to 10 cents each. This established a precedent for other Adventist evangelists to follow. During 1855 and 56, Loughborough teamed up with W.S. Ingram and Samuel Rhodes for preaching forays across New York and Pennsylvania. Once when fording a swollen stream with old Charlie hitched to his wagon, John Loughborough fell into the water and nearly drowned. It was the horse that rescued him. To pay expenses, they helped farmers harvest hay at $4 a week. Nevertheless, after one seven-week tour of central New York, John declared, the blessing of the Lord has been with me, and I've had some excellent times in striving to speak the word of truth to the people here. I think the cause is rising somewhat. Luprell then teamed up with Ellen White and six other preachers for a whirlwind evangelistic tour of Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa in 1857. He returned to Battle Creek to a big surprise that fall. First of all, he was asked to give the dedicatory sermon for the second meeting house that Adventists had built in Battle Creek. But the second and biggest surprise, I'm sure, for Mary was that the believers in Battle Creek had pooled their money and they had built for the Loughboroughs a humble home on Champion Street. 
fully furnished in this home, they would experience joy and sorrow with the birth of daughter Teresa in 1858, son Delmer in 1864, but followed by Teresa's tragic death at the age of two. During the winter of 1857 and 8, Loughborough received as his wages, I want you to know. All right, we didn't have a tithing plan yet. No tithing plan. So they worked for gifts. These were his wages for the winter, 1857-58. Three 10-pound cakes of maple sugar, 10 bushels of wheat, five bushels of apples, five bushels of potatoes, one ham, half a hog, one peck of beans, and only $4 in cash. That's the winter's wages. And yet he rejoiced that God had converted 16 souls in his 16 meetings. During the 1860s, Elder Loughborough played key roles in church organization at every single level. He helped organize local churches throughout Michigan, Illinois, and Wisconsin. In 1861, he also organized conferences, beginning right here in Michigan, and then Wisconsin, and then Illinois. In 1863, he took a leading role in drawing up the first constitution for the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. Now, health reform, like dress reform, often met with opposition, much resistance, from many of our early Adventist pioneers, but not from John and Mary Loughborough. Following Mrs. White's June 1863 health reform vision, he and Mary weaned themselves from eating meat, which they had been eating three times every day. And they cut their use of salty, sweet, and greasy foods. In his many articles and his personal lifestyle, Loughborough became a model health reformer. And as a result, he outlived all the other pioneers. In 1866, he would take a leading role in organizing the Western Health Reform Institute and starting the new journal called The Health Reformer. But you know, he was a workaholic, and overwork nearly killed John Loughborough. Besides preaching and writing and organizing churches, he served as the auditor of the Seventh-day Adventist Publishing Association, the president of the Michigan Conference, and one of three general conference officers. Near physical and emotional collapse, Loughborough accompanied Uriah Smith and James and Ellen White to Dr. Caleb Jackson's Our Home on the Hillside in Dansville, New York. It was what was then called a water cure establishment or a sanitarium for four months of medical treatments, rest, relaxation, and recuperation. After his recovery, he hit the gospel trail again, out to Iowa, up to Wisconsin, Minnesota, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, organizing new churches, organizing conferences, raising funds for the new sanitarium. In addition, after several months of diligent research on his part, John Loughborough wrote the book Physiology and Hygiene, a practical question and answer medical manual for families. That's another famous first before John Harvey Kellogg wrote his first medical book. It was J.N. Loughborough who wrote Physiology and Hygiene. But in June of 1867, his wife Mary, battling scrofula, had a bad fall and died days later, giving birth to two daughters. One of the babies died. The other, named Mary after her mother, lived. The Cornells cared for the tiny baby while John's brother William and his wife Eliza rushed all the way from Rochester, New York to take care of three-year-old Delmer. Oh, how lonely, how lonely, John lamented in his diary. He drowned his sorrows in work. He entered a one-year medical course and kept up a busy schedule of preaching. And in the meantime, he met a charming brunette named Maggie, Maggie Ann Newman, who lived in Lansing, Michigan. 
Two weeks after the wedding, John, Maggie, Delmer, and baby Mary, with D.T. Bordeaux and his wife, boarded the ship the Rising Star in New York City for a 6,000-mile voyage to Panama and up the Pacific coast to San Francisco. Unknown to them, a certain Mr. Wolf had seen in a dream a few days earlier that they were going to be arriving in California. Well, his friend, Mr. Hugh, had read a newspaper notice of their arrival. Both Christian men, they rushed to the docks in San Francisco Francisco, just in time to see an evangelistic tent arrive at the warehouse. Following the laborers' directions, Hugh and Wolf found the Adventist missionaries and begged them to hold their first tent meetings in Petaluma and Santa Rosa. For two months, Loughborough and Bordeaux preached to capacity crowds, debating local pastors, surviving an earthquake and a local epidemic, and baptizing the first converts in California. So those were the first two churches, the first two Adventist churches established in the state of California, Petaluma and Santa Rosa. During his 10 years there in California, 1868 to 1878, Elder Loughborough pioneered a number of innovations. He started the California Missionary and Tract Society, the equivalent of what we today call Adventist Book Centers. He sponsored the first Sabbath school convention. He organized the first quarterly music conventions to improve the quality of singing in the local churches. In 1875, using Bible references to bolster his case, Elder Loughborough persuaded Adventists that organs should be a regular part of their worship services. You see, most people saw organs as a parlor instrument to play secular music, like Stephen Foster's Decamp Town Races and Old Folks at Home. Loughborough cited Bible texts, one of them in the Psalms, Psalms 150, I think verse 7, that actually uses the word organ. He said, let's get organs in the churches. The 1875 camp meeting at Fairfax Station was the first ever held by Adventists at which congregational singing was accompanied by an organ. Loughborough repeatedly insisted that local churches purchase pump organs so that the congregations could sing in tune and in time with one another. Although John rescued his son from dying of measles in 1877, he could not save Maggie. Maggie was dying of tuberculosis, contracted from a woman she had nursed in their home On March 24, Margaret Newman Loughborough, age 35, died, leaving behind three children and a broken-hearted husband. Once again, John buried his grief in work, putting in long hours at the Pacific Press to get out the signs of the times, to answer his growing correspondence, and to handle the many details that went with all his administrative duties. And more often now, he leaned on the expert help of an attractive woman named Annie Driscoll, the secretary treasurer of the Pacific Publishing Association. On December 7, 1875, James White married them. For the next 32 years, until she died in 1907, Annie would truly be the love of John's life. They raised three kids. They traveled together. They even wrote books and articles together. But in July of 1878, James White upset the Loughborough comfortable existence by announcing plans to open a new mission in England. And he wanted John to take charge of it. John and Annie prayed about the matter. Like Gideon of old, they promised God that if their house sold quickly, they would take this as a sign that they should go to England. Within a matter of weeks, the house sold. So John and Annie made plans to start a new life in the British Isles. 
In November of 1878, the Loughboroughs arrived in Boston, intending to sail for England on the ship Homer. But they got there late. They missed the boat, and they saved their lives. A few weeks later, they learned that the Homer had sunk, and all the passengers and crew had drowned. Providence, without a doubt. So instead, they took the ship Nevada. Within days of their arrival at Southampton in southwestern England, Elder Loughborough and his companion, William Ings, began holding four meetings a week in Shirley Hall, while Annie and the children settled into rented quarters at Stanley Cottage. In just three months, these tireless men preached scores of sermons, visited 300 families, distributed thousands of copies of the Signs of the Times aboard ships in the harbor. In addition, they gave Bible studies, they started a Sunday school for non-Adventist children, and they established a Sabbath school for recent converts. In his spare time, if you can imagine he had any, John also studied French and German. In London, he visited churches and museums and indulged his weakness. Oh, yes. Yes, Loughborough had a weakness for black licorice. It pops up several times in his diaries, and it gave him tooth decay, which cost him dental bills later in life. Seeking larger accommodations, the Loughboroughs discovered Ravenswood, and that's the picture you see, a 15-room mansion in Southampton with plenty of space for the family, for the workers' offices, and for public meetings. Since the locals believed that Ravenswood was haunted by a moaning ghost, they rented it to the Loughboroughs for only $200 a year. During his first inspection tour, John discovered a broken pane of glass up in the cupola. And after he replaced it, the ghostly moaning ceased. At Ravenswood, Ings and Loughborough preached to 100 listeners every single night. They started a Sabbath school, and John constructed a special baptistry down in the basement. In 1880, this old mansion became the headquarters for our first British Tract and Missionary Society. By 1881, workers here printed special issues of the British paper, The Signs of the Times. In England, Loughborough and Ings ministered to some religious groups that were seldom evangelized here in America. Seventh-day Baptists, Christadelphians, spiritualists, Jews, the Salvation Army, and those who belonged to the Church of England or Anglican Church. Nonetheless, Great Britain was difficult, a very difficult field for evangelism. John's wife, Annie, stated it this way. She said, it takes strong faith and a very large amount of courage and a good supply of noble independence for an Englishman to break away from the strong national customs and to come out frankly to keep the Sabbath. In fact, in England at that time, the work week was six days long, not five. Those who converted often lost their jobs for refusing to work on Saturday. Although the high cost of living, class prejudice, Anglican opposition, and the cold, wet, rainy weather made public evangelism difficult in Britain. By the end of 1883, Elder Loughborough and his associates had established three churches with 70 Adventist members. The British Tract and Missionary Society, with 45 active members, was mailing thousands of signs of the times, besides tract and missionary letters. And George Drew distributed literature on hundreds of ships every month. See, South Hampton, even today, is a huge harbor. So ships were coming and going regularly. Although Loughborough had been working in Britain less than five years, God had blessed his efforts. He had erected a solid spiritual foundation on which others could build. But there were new fields opening up here in the American West, and the General Conference voted to bring the Loughboroughs home to help open those fields. 
So in October of 1884, they sailed from England to the United States. You can imagine that after five years in a cold, windy, wet climate, John and Annie were more than eager to return to the warm sunshine of Northern California. From 1884 to 1890, Oakland would be their home. But Ellen White believed that John should be a kind of a minister without portfolio, a moving, roving ambassador for God, unhindered by administrative duties and institutional ties. So during the summer of 1884, she invited him to travel with her to camp meetings all over California, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, preaching together on the sawdust trail, just as they had done decades earlier in the 1850s and 60s. Now, the Victorians had a saying, and you've all heard it, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Elder Loughborough needed relaxation. He needed recreation to escape a busy household that now included 13 persons, including the boarders they took in. So he developed some hobbies. He started going on buggy rides. He liked to drive fast. And he started spelunking, exploring California's caves. And being only five feet four and 110 pounds, there's a lot of cave holes he can get through. He also took up scrapbooking. And we have some of his scrapbooks at the Center for Adventist Research at Andrews. He also loved to go on picnics, just like Ellen White did, with family, church, and school groups. And when overwork made him tense, he went to the St. Helena Sanitarium for massages. Elder Loughborough frequently organized new companies of believers into incorporated churches up and down the West Coast. During the 1880s, he more or less literally lived out of a suitcase. He boarded with church members as he traveled through California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Nevada. He also learned how to type on one of the earliest invented manual typewriters. He wrote, I am a raw hand with a typewriter, but I thought it might be easier to read than my writing. I would somewhat debate that. I have read some of his typed letters, and he seems never to have been introduced to lowercase letters. So he typed all his letters in capital letters. That's a little tiring on the eyes. Over Ellen White's objections, John was elected president of the Nebraska Conference in 1890. In a strongly worded letter to General Conference President O.A. Olson, Mrs. White urged that Elder Loughborough should be sent to churches and camp meetings across the United States to meet unbelief and doubt and skepticism by sharing his experiences in the early years of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Increasingly, the theme of rise and progress would become the subject of his sermons and indeed the title of his first historical work. In 1890, the General Conference Committee asked him to write the very first history of Seventh-day Adventist movement. Then, in a marathon writing effort, Loughborough completed the manuscript that became Rise and Progress of Seventh-day Adventists in only five months. And again, if you'd like to see an original copy of Rise and Progress, Go to the exhibit tent out back here and ask Terry Dodge to see the copy that I have donated for this camp meeting week. His wife Annie, as well as pioneer Stephen Haskell, Uriah Smith, and George Butler served as copy editors and critics. During that writing spree, John continued preaching at camp meetings and workers' meetings. During the 1890s, he witnessed some amazing miracles himself. And there's a book also at the Exhibit Center, entitled Miracles in My Life by J.N. Loughborough. I donated that copy for this week. Following spirit-filled preaching by A.T. Jones, W.W. Prescott, and Elder Loughborough himself at the Mount Vernon, Ohio camp meeting in August of 1891, 30 seriously ill believers gain instant health 
following a faith healing session. John Loughborough referred to this as the nearest approach to a Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit of God that I have witnessed since 1844. Unfortunately, at 60, Elder Loughborough himself did not always enjoy good health. In 1892 and 3, he suffered from attacks of influenza, fainting spells, severe bouts of coughing due to the fluid in his lungs. He needed hot fomentation compresses at the Chicago Mission to help him survive our Midwest winters. In May of 92, he caught a fever, and he fainted, and he fell to the sidewalk in Bowling Green, Ohio. And yet these health problems seldom seemed to slow him down. During 1892 alone, he preached 118 sermons performed 14 baptisms, six weddings, attended dozens of canvassers' gatherings, church workers' conferences, and camp meetings. But in 1894, a double tragedy struck the Loughborough family. His son, Delmer, a licensed minister, active in the canvassing and Sabbath school work in Indiana and Illinois, contracted typhoid fever at a camp meeting in Indiana and died in agony at the age of 30. A week later, John's mother, Minerva Rowley, died in Battle Creek at 93. And so with Delmer's wife, Maria, John shopped for two caskets and two tombstones. And then he wrote the obituaries for his mother and for his son. Convinced that Adventists needed to hear the faith-building stories about the pioneers, church leaders began sending Elder Loughborough all over the United States to share his experiences at camp meetings. In 1895 alone, he preached at workers' conferences and camp meetings in Kansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Texas, Arkansas, and Colorado. And then in 1896, church leaders sent Loughborough on a preaching tour of Europe. He traveled 19,000 miles across England, Sweden, Norway, Germany, Switzerland, and Denmark, accompanied by Ella J. Wagner and Louis R. Conradi, whom we'll talk about on Thursday. He preached 270 sermons in 16 different languages groups, attended 370 meetings, and made 76 home visits but he also took some time out of his hectic schedule for his hobby, collecting buckets of seashells. He also added to his coin collection. He purchased presents for family and friends, and whenever he felt tired and achy, he went to a sanitarium and got a massage. Although Elder Loughborough turned 65 in 1897, he had no intention of retiring from active labor. He was having too much fun traveling, preaching, and writing. In 1897, he traveled 30,000 miles, attended 400 meetings, preached 250 sermons, and made 130 home visits in 12 states and England. You know, he actually loved hitting the sawdust trail in the summer, speaking about his early Adventist experiences at camp meetings across America. He preached in prairie sod houses heated by cow manure. He preached aboard steamships plying the Atlantic Ocean. He preached on a mountaintop in Tennessee ablaze with autumn colors. Although conservative in his theology, he demonstrated a tolerant, even progressive mindset when he ordained the black preacher, Louis Sheaf, in South Lancaster, Massachusetts. And there is one of these books in the Advent Pioneer series, a biography of Louis Sheaf, that is fascinating to read. A huge fan of the National WCTU Adventist lecture, Sarepta Miranda Irish Henry, and we'll talk a bit about her tomorrow. He enjoyed sharing the platform with Our Lady Henry, as he called her. 
1899 and 1900, John and Annie spent 15 memorable months in Europe. He preached at workers' meetings and camp meetings in England, Ireland, Wales, France, Germany, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Switzerland. During this exhausting tour, John began taking daily cold baths. This may have contributed to his better health and longevity. After returning from Europe, he and Annie bought a house in Oakland, which was then the headquarters of Pacific Press. Here they raised their Rhode Island Reds, they raised collies, and they put in a huge vegetable garden. Ever the preacher, Loughborough loved to tell stories to the church school and academy students and to speak to the students at Pacific Union College to address the patients as well at St. Helena Sanitarium. And then in 1902, the General Conference Committee asked him to prepare an updated, enlarged version of the church history. After six hectic months of research, writing, and typing, he published the manuscript in 1905 as the Great Second Advent Movement, and I've donated a copy of that as well in the exhibit tent. For decades, missionary volunteers were required to pass a rigorous exam over that book, to earn the coveted Standard of Achievement Award in Adventist history. In 1904, John and Annie decided they wanted a house of their own. And so, at the age of 72, John and one helper built that new house from the foundation to the roof. John records in his diary he hauled 60 wheelbarrow loads of firewood to the site. He planted a great vineyard. And he planted an orchard that included apricot, apple, pear, pear, plum, peach, cherry, orange, lemon, almond, and fig trees. They sort of lived in the Garden of Eden, didn't they? Well, the Loughborough's house survived the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. John would soon lose something far more precious. In 1905, Annie had shown signs of pericarditis. He nursed her through the 1906-1907 years, taking short preaching trips so as to be nearby, but Annie grew weaker, and on May 31, 1907, her heart stopped beating. Devastated, John grieved so deeply that he skipped meals and dropped to 110 pounds. He told Dr. Kellogg that Annie's death has just broken me all up, and he wrote Willie White, the shock on my nerves has left me very weak physically. But Elder Loughborough refused to allow his the death of his third wife to prevent him from pursuing an active life. At 75, he worked in the garden. He visited many museums. He took fast and noisy automobile rides, and he read 21 papers and magazines every single week. He was much in demand as a storyteller at the Lodi Church School, San Fernando Academy, College at Healdsburg, Loma Linda, St. Helena, San. In 1909, when he was in his 70s, the General Conference brethren sent him on a worldwide tour of Fiji, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, England, Switzerland, and France. In 16 months, he traveled 47,500 miles, attended 500 meetings, and preached 350 sermons. But in 1910, the General Conference instituted the first retirement plan. It was called sustentation, and they put Elder Loughborough, who was 78, on sustentation. Oh, he was extremely unhappy about being forced into retirement, declaring that he felt like the mule forced to live in the barn after years of pulling the plow with his teammate. But he didn't stop working. In his retirement, Elder Loughborough typed up comprehensive indexes to Ellen White's books, Desire of Ages, Great Controversy, Christ Object Lessons, Patriarchs and Prophets, Acts of the Apostles, The Spirit of Prophecy Sat, which was four volumes, and all nine volumes of her testimonies. Wow. He also drew up a list of 104 fulfilled predictions that Ellen White had made. He kept up an exhausting correspondence with relatives, friends, church members, and even with church opponents, banging out his letters on the old manual typewriter. And he continued attending California camp meetings when he was asked to tell stories 
about Adventism's early days. But he felt a deep sadness in 1915 when his dear friend Ellen White died. They had traveled together throughout the Midwest in the 50s and 60s. Her testimonies had kept him anchored. Her counsel had guided him. Ellen was the only pioneer I know of to have three funerals, and Elder Loughborough attended two of them. He preached the sermon at the first funeral at Elmshaven, her home in California. He offered a prayer at the second funeral at the Richmond, California camp meeting. He did not make the train trip across the United States to Battle Creek for the third funeral. In 1916, when John and Mary Ireland, that's Loughborough's daughter's married name, accepted a call to join the General Conference in Tacoma Park, Elder Loughborough, who is now 84, decided to stay behind in California. In October, he moved into a fifth-floor room at St. Helena Sand, where he lived a Spartan but comfortable life on his $60 monthly sustentation check. And there he received over 200 letters in the first three months. He typed out responses to every one of them. In addition, old friends dropped by every week to visit him. Into his late 80s, Elder Loughborough was writing for the 15 church papers that he subscribed to. He frequently found relaxation in nature. He walked up the mountain daily. He fed the birds at his window bird feeder. He gathered acorns for the deer at the deer park. He went for automobile rides, and he attended stereopticon programs and band concerts. But by 1920, the aging pioneer was clearly failing. His weight had dropped to 107 pounds. His shaking hands created a scrawl almost impossible to read. In 1922, his sister, Minerva Jane Chapman, died in Battle Creek at age 94. Recognizing that his days were numbered, he made plans for his funeral. He would be buried in his Prince Albert suit with a single red rose in his right hand, and over his heart on a little wooden plaque, the words, My trust is in Christ, the Rose of Sharon. In May 1923, Elder Loughborough fell down those sanitarium stairs and was confined to bed. The end came quietly on April 7, 1924, ten weeks after his 92nd birthday. He was buried in St. Helena Cemetery between his two wives, Maggie Newman and Anna Driscoll. His first wife, by the way, Mary Walker, lies in Battle Creek Cemetery. He awaits the call of the life-giver on that great second Advent morning he had written so much about for 70 long years. That's the Reader's Digest version. If you want the rest of the story, it's right here, okay? 450 pages on the life of J.N. Loughborough by yours truly. And there are only three copies left in the ABC. Don't kill each other trampling, all right? Make your way there right after the meeting. This is one of the three. I promised him I'd get it back by 3.30. The other book that I have authored, John Byington, General Conference President, the first one, circuit-riding preacher, radical reformer, active on the Underground Railroad, abolitionist. Oh, amazing, amazing life. So as the microphones are about ready to go out, I just want to point out there's only three copies of Loughborough, one copy of the James White biography, two copies of Uriah Smith's biography, one copy of A.D. Jones, three copies of the Byington book, two copies of Louis Sheaf, our black preacher, and two copies of W.W. Prescott's autobiography, okay? That's all they have here on this campground. So be sure to get your copy. I'll be there at 9 o'clock on Thursday morning to autograph them for you. All right, questions. Questions. You brought some questions with you about Adventist history or about the Loughboroughs or any other aspect of Adventist history. Uh, reading your book, it looked like in the rise and progress of Adventism that you were noting that Loughborough had several mistakes, we could <laughs> say, or inaccuracies. Was that a personality issue or was that lack of uh, modern historical research that, that uh, led to that? Uh, I would choose both. Loughborough was what we historians would call an apologist. Uh, he wants to 
write in both of those books, by the way, <clears throat> Rise and Progress and, uh, and the uh, Great Second Advent Movement, he wants to inspire. He wants to uplift. Um, those books were also intended for non-Adventists to read. So he wants to introduce them to Adventist teachings. So he wants it to be uplifting, inspiring. Um, and so there's some things he just doesn't write about. And in other cases, he's writing about things that happened before he was converted in 1852 to Adventism. So he doesn't know a lot about the period of the Millerite movement from 1844 and to 1852. He gets some things wrong. He gets some dates wrong. He gets some people wrong. And uh, so your other point, I think, is also valid. You know, he's not trained. He only had an eighth grade education. So he's not trained in research. He's not trained in the type of research we historians do. So yes, in my two chapters in which I deal with his two books, uh, I do point out some of the mistakes that he made. I'm not accusing him of deliberately falsifying history, but I think, you know, he tended to look at the Adventist past through rose-colored glasses. And I hope you've noticed that this week I'm trying to give a balance. I've already had one pastor point that out to me. The pastor of the Paul Paul Church said, I notice you try to spend equal amounts of time on the challenges and the successes. And that's what I intend to do. When we hit John Harvey Kellogg, I'll give exactly the same number of pages to his good side as I will to his bad side. You can, you can decide for yourself which you like better. <laughs> All right. Other questions? We've still got three minutes here. <clears throat> Unless we've got a group that knows everything there is to know, and then I should be asking you some questions. <laughs> So Lofra actually outlived three wives. Isn't that unique? That's unusual. Yeah, he outlived three wives. They all died on him. And then in his early 90s, he had a girlfriend, his nurse at St. Helena Sanitarium. His nurse was his girlfriend. They had good Christian visits together, as he described it in his diary. This is unusual. We had a lot of questions yesterday, didn't we? About Ellen White and James White. Tomorrow we're going to uh, transition from history to herstory. Okay? We're going to talk about women. And particularly about Sarah Ann Halleck Lindsay, the first female Adventist evangelist to get a license to preach ministerial license, back in the 1860s, and some of her contemporaries. I'll do shorter clips on some of her contemporaries. So if you're interested in women and Adventist history, be sure to come tomorrow. One minute left if you've got that burning question waiting to ask. Usually very small. These were rural churches. Yeah, our evangelists tended not to go to the big cities until the turn of the 20th century. So they'd be small churches. Eight, 10, 12, 15 members would be average. Some of them may be 40 or 50, but not, not too many in that size. Yeah. Okay, well, let's stand then for our closing prayer. and We'll hope to see you tomorrow. Loving Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us together in fellowship today. Thank you for the life of John Norton Loughborough, a little man who cast a big, long shadow over our church. So many of the things we teach and practice today originated with his creative mind. We have seen the challenges he faced, and we face some of the same challenges too. Help us to go to our knees as he did in seeking spiritual help for those challenges. And keep us faithful that someday in heaven above, we will be able to meet John Loughborough and hear him sing in that lovely Irish brogue. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2023 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.